Hey, Christianity has always been a big pain in the butt for communities and commonly accepted norms. How should the church be a pain in the butt today? We will discuss news and maybe some of your questions. Acts chapter 17 is where we'll be. This is your favorite night of the week, The Deep End with Tim Hatch. Good evening, Tuesday night people on The Deep End. Welcome to our YouTube audience, youtube.com slash TV. Welcome to Spotify, W-E-Z-E, AM 590 in Boston, FM 99.5, Thursday nights in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. I'm here in the studio with my fantastic studio crew. Let's put them up on the screen. Hello, Michael and Andre. And we are back for another edition of The Deep End. It is episode 27 of season three as we stroll through the book of Acts. Only 11 chapters to go after today. Acts chapter 17 <laughs> is where we'll be. Yeah. <laughs> only 11 Why, more to go. Yeah, only 11. Why do you laugh there? Why do you laugh? Because it's been too long, hasn't it? No, no, I love it. <laughs> you're supposed to love it. You're paid to love it. Yeah, so you, you have to yeah. love it. I'm sorry. <laughs> 11 more chapters to go, and we'll see if we can get this done by the end of July. Usually we take August and a little bit of September off from the deep end. So that's the goal. Um, and that's where we're at. So everybody who's watching us on YouTube and on the Waters Church page, let me just tell you. It is finished. Get yourself over to the Deep End channel, which is youtube.com slash the deep end TV. Excellent use of that. Yes, way. isn't it? Thank you. And I want to just thank uh, the Reverend Kenneth Copeland for his wonderful voice. COVID-19! I just Perfect. love it. I mean, man, that's just so beatable. I love it. Anyway, for those of you who know me well, I, I am an a, F. Huh? I believe the note is an F. I think so. It's an F sharp. You watched that I other did. YouTube. I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, I'm a, for those of you who know me, I'm a frustrated DJ artist, and so I like to use this uh, opening moment for my DJ jams. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> Please let me know in the comments below how awesome the jam is, okay? <laughs> if you didn't like it, don't comment. <laughs> Just... Like and subscribe to the YouTube uh, channel. We appreciate that. Oh, also, I've been meaning to ask you this. Uh, if you are a podcast listener on your podcast app, can you do me a favor and leave a review and uh, leave a positive five-star review? Um, you will basically earn bonus points in heaven if you do so. Uh, we would love to have your review on <laughs> podcast on the podcast apps. It helps actually spread the word. It gets the podcast out there. So please, please, please do that. Leave a review on your favorite podcast application. So mm. have you done that yet, Michael, over there? Minnesota Mike? Uh, no, no comment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, with that in mind, let's get over to Deep End News today. All right. COVID-19. COVID-19. Does it have you bothered? I mean, uh, you've got to be sick of it. I watched the comments roll in last week after the episode, and I saw many of you agreed with me. We're tired of it. We're done with it. Guess what? I'm done with it. I'm done with it. I've been hearing reports from California. God bless my Christian brothers in California. They are not going to ask for permission to reopen mm -hmm. on May 31st. Isn't that nice. wonderful? Yeah, isn't that great? And Thank God for Elon Musk, too, eh? Yes. Oh, <laughs> Elon Musk's a South African. Now, I married a South African, so this guy is near and dear to my heart. I married a South African woman. He's <laughs> a South African man. Um, and key distinction to make Yeah, there. key distinction in today's world. Uh, yeah. So Elon Musk is reopening. Is he, did he reopen today? I believe it was today, yeah. And he said, I'm going to be on the assembly line. Yep. If anybody wants to arrest somebody, arrest me. I'm proud of that guy. A leadership. Yeah. Yeah. So we he's, are. He's done some weird 
things. He's, he's said some weird stuff, but this one I'm... Yeah, the pot, the pot smoking. Yeah. <laughs> Not a big fan. <laughs> Are we in a simulation? <laughs> oh, yeah. He and he wants to question. die on Mars. He wants to be buried on Mars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, anyway... He's reopening. Uh, 500 California pastors are planning on reopening their churches, regardless of whether they have the state's approval or not. The churches are not asking permission, said religious freedom attorney Bob Tyler, who's advising pastors uh, on the decision. The governor is sitting there as a dictator. Trumping the Constitution is kind of hanging on to the state of emergency for as long as he can hold it. And I agree. I agree. Some of these governors have, have gone ballistic with governmental authority. Agreed. Yeah. It's too much. And um, ironically, well, not ironically, perhaps providentially. No, not perhaps. Definitely providentially. May 31st is Pentecost. Mm-hmm. And the Christian calendar, for those of you who are new to Christianity, there's huge days in the Christian calendar. Obviously, Christmas Day has got to be up there in the top. Then, you, you know, followed by Easter, Good Friday. Well, Pentecost is not one that we typically celebrate, but they're going to celebrate it May 31st, the day of Pentecost, and I think Waters Church is going to celebrate it too. I don't see Waters Church going past May 24th for no services. So just hang tight. I don't want to say anything on the Deep End podcast, and I don't want to say anything too early, lest we get governmental pressure or threats. <laughs> if you're not on our church's uh, text alert system, please do so by, please get on that text alert system by texting Waters Church, one word, to 41411, because we want to let you know covertly when we might be. <laughs> celebrating church in person again. And, and governmental people, if you're listening, leave us a review. Yes, <laughs> leave us a positive five-star review. Uh, you know, what are they going to do? They're going to arrest me? I, I mean, I think it's time to do something. And you know what? This is the topic of this episode of The Deep End, which is the church has always been a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. And we don't realize this, but the church is supposed to be a pain in the butt to commonly accepted norms in society. Yep. You know, if we didn't have the church, there'd still be something like, uh, you know, segregation and, and slavery and, and un- other untold evils. We're going to get into that when we get into the book of Acts. But this is, it's, it might be our time. Let me know in the comments what you think. It might be our time to say, uh, government, thus far, no further. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you say, well, are you breaking a law? I don't think it's a law that we would actually be breaking. I think it's a state of emergency state. Standard or something like that. Yeah. Like some, yeah. some kind I, of. I don't decree. think anything's actually been signed into no, law. Yeah, it's got to be. The legislature has to sign something into law. There's right. been no right. law passing. This is just. This is just. Very strong suggestions. Governmental overreach, in my opinion. And it's been governmental overreach for some time. Remember when it was about flattening the curve so that the hospitals didn't get overrun? Yep. And now like it seems. Three weeks ago? <laughs> like two months ago. Yeah. yeah. Now it seems like the goal is to end death. <laughs> Yeah. As soon as we can end death, we will reopen. <laughs> and why is it that up here, and I, you know, for, forgive me for getting a little bit political, but why liberal governors, why Democratic governors, are you so f- f- afraid, so afraid of opening your state? Uh, Georgia has been open for two weeks and they are now uh, at an all time low in cases per day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now you're seeing the difference, right? You're seeing the difference. You wonder why I'm a small government guy. You're seeing the difference, you're feeling the difference. And I have a vested interest personally. I mean, I've got family and friends who have small businesses. I've got family and friends, and they are struggling. They are struggling, and they are at the, their wits' end, and they don't know how they're going to they're feed their family. And this is, this is getting ridiculous. And it's going to come to a point where we need to just say to the government, enough. No mess. Yeah, you are government of the people, by the people, for the people, and we are the people. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to end death. That's the thing, right? That's not, you're not going to end death. Only Christ can end death. Uh, and it's not going to happen until he comes again. So, what what are we? We're like a, we're like the frogs in the kettle, aren't mm-hmm. we? 
the, mm-hmm. the temperature's getting turned up slowly. And here we are just sitting and taking it. Governmental authority being turned up. Uh, governmental leadership taking too many freedoms and privileges and rights away from its citizens. All in the name of safety. Safety. Sparing one life. I've talked about all this on the Deep End podcast before. You can go back and watch my COVID commentaries from weeks past. But anyway, I don't want to get too much into that. May 31st, mark it down in your calendars and get on your Waters Church uh Text alert system by texting Waters Church one word to 41411. Okay, now, church has always been a pain in the butt for governors, mm. uh, governments, uh, you know, commonly accepted norms of the society in which the church lives. Well, case in point, in Nigeria, uh, this happened. A kidnapped seminarian named Michael Nadi was murdered by a Nigerian gang of Muslims earlier uh, this year because he would not stop preaching the gospel to his Muslim captors. Man, this guy is like, this guy is just like um, the archetype of Christian courage. Yeah. I mean, man. So he was murdered by his Muslim captors because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. Think about it. He was in prison with three other seminarians, and only he, out of the four, would not stop preaching the gospel to his captors. Uh, this was reported in the Sun News Online, and it said that uh, Mustafa Muhammad, who was interviewed by the news outlet, I don't know how these people get interviewed. They don't get arrested, and they don't get you know, uh, justice brought to them. But anyway, he was interviewed by the Sun News Online. He said that Nadi kept preaching and told him to face, uh, to face his, uh, told him to his face to change his evil ways or perish. Nadi did not allow Muhammad to have peace as he continued preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to him, even when he knew they were not of the same faith. Um, Muhammad did not like the confidence displayed by the young man and decided to send him to an early grave. Sad. Yeah, sad. <laughs> but at the same time, joy in heaven. Because yeah. you know what? He saw the moment after the bullet went through his head or, or whatever happened, the moment after that, he saw Jesus' face. Amen. And you have to just see Jesus wrapping his arms around Michael Nadi. And you know, Michael Nadi kind of like puts to shame these Christian pastors today who refuse to do anything that upsets the apple cart of their communities, upsets the apple cart of commonly accepted norms. This guy is uh, this guy is courage. This guy is brave. And I do think it's ironic that one out of four captors were willing to preach the gospel. Now, this guy's Catholic, by the way, too. He's a Catholic mm. seminarian. And and thank God. And you know, Catholicism in America and Africa, they're like apples and oranges. You know, over in the the African countries, the Catholics are really standing for Christ and not uh, capitulating to uh, the culture. Uh, Case in point, Michael Nadi in this this respect. But this is what I'm talking about today on the deep end. The gospel makes trouble for the world. The gospel makes trouble for the world. So with that in mind, we're going to go right to the book of Acts after this short announcement. The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you would like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv slash partner or on the cash app with the cash tag, The Deep End TV. All right, Acts chapter 17, like I said, 11 chapters to go, 17 down after today, and the title of this talk, I have titled this talk, The Original Troublemaker, The Original Troublemaker, How the Gospel Discomforts All Kinds of Community, How the Gospel Discomforts All Kinds of Community, Acts chapter 17, we're going to see in three different locations, the gospel was preached and trouble 
resulted. And by the way, this happens in the next chapter as well in Ephesus to a higher degree. But I think that it's something that we have to point out about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel of Jesus? The gospel of Jesus is that Jesus Christ, God's son, okay, came to earth and died, was put on a cross and rose again for your sins. That's, that's the gospel message. Pretty harmless, right? Like, it's not exactly a message that, you know, ricochets from the political punditry uh, speeches of our age. It's not exactly a message that the universities of our world are still trying to dissect and interpret uh, and considering and considering it some kind of atomic bomb of truth. It's, it's the simple message, what I'm trying to say. It's a simple message that this carpenter from Nazareth in Israel 2,000 years ago lived, died, rose again, and his followers wouldn't shut up about it. I mean, that's the gospel message. It's not exactly an atomic bomb. Yet, for 2,000 years, it has caused untold division, discord, disruption to communities around the world. Even the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ, is a divisive name. You can talk all day about God to people, but bring up Jesus Christ and everybody's like, hey, don't get fundamental on me. Uh, the name Jesus is a divisive name in many respects. For some people, it's a swear word. It's on the same level as the F word or the S word. You know, Jesus just gets thrown around on our on our on our uh, on our pop culture entertainment options all over the place. And for Christians, it's the most precious name in the world to hear Jesus Christ used as an epitaph or as a uh, as a as a an, a curse word. It's, it brings hurt to the Christian's heart. How is it that this simple message of Jesus Christ, a, a carpenter from Nazareth, 2,000 years ago, died and rose again, how is it that this message causes all kinds of trouble in the world and its, and its order? Well, we're going to talk about that. Christianity has a long, rich history of causing trouble for the culture of its day, both inside your life, inside your home, inside your community, inside your nation, and beyond. And in the time of COVID-19, COVID I mean, it might be time to admit that when, at what point do we say enough and it's time to cause some trouble, to not just go with the flow? We have a long history we're going to discuss today on the deep end as we go through Acts chapter 17. So let's get into the text. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Here's what it says. Paul, on his second missionary journey, um, he has just left Philippi where if you remember, he was imprisoned with Silas. They sang songs. They got miraculously delivered. The jailer gets saved. They go back. They visit Lydia. They have dinner, and then they're on their way. So here we are picking up the story, Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Ampi Amphipolis, Amphipolis and Apollonia. I should have practiced the words before I got on this. Ampi Amphip Amphipolis. Amphipolis. Holy smokes. So sorry, everybody. <laughs> and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There, I got that one. Where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Okay, a couple things I want to point out from this passage, real quickly, that Paul's message um, and his custom, three Sabbath days, he goes into the synagogue. That's where the Jews would have been. But look, 
explaining and proving that it was necessary that the Christ to suffer, that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Why do I point that out? Because it it upended the culturally accepted norms of the Jews of the day to hear that the Christ came to suffer and die. See, their their culturally accepted norms of their day was the Christ was going to come. And in power, he was going to overthrow Rome. And this is why when Jesus marches into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, they lay down their coats and they wave palm branches because the palm branch was the symbol of a revolt led by a Jew a couple of hundred years before Jesus named Judas Maccabeus, who marched into the city to reclaim the city for the Jews after um, Antiochus Epiphanes, the the Greek general, uh, basically destroyed the Jewish religious system in Jerusalem. And so the palm branches, we have Palm Sunday today to this day, and we never do this at our church. We never have palms in our church on on Palm Sunday because it actually was a symbol of overthrowing uh, Roman and Greek oppression uh, in Jesus' day. And so when they were waving those palms, they were actually saying, okay, now you're going to come and you're going to overthrow Rome and we're going to have our freedoms back. That's what they were saying. They were expecting Messiah to come and rule the world on behalf of the Jews and destroy all her enemies. But Jesus comes and dies, and it kind of upends. Like the message of Jesus upends the cultural norms of the Jews of the first century. This is what I'm trying to say. Wherever Jesus is preached, he kind of upends what you assume about God, what you assume about the world, what you assume about what's right and what's wrong. Case in point right here. Paul comes into Thessalonica, goes into the synagogue, says, hey, we want to talk to you about the Messiah? They're like, yeah, when's he showing up? We want to get rid of the Romans. He's like, no, 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 he already came, and the Romans put him to death. No, no, that's not how the story goes. He's supposed to put the Romans to death. No, he went to death at the hands of the Romans, and then he's going to come back because he's alive again, by the way. He beat death. He, he beat somebody worse than the Romans. He beat death, right? And, and so they struggle with this, but look what it says in verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. These are Jewish converts, Okay, so they were Jewish converts and not a few of the leading women. Paul is being very effective in proclaiming Jesus. This message, this simple message of a Jewish carpenter who was crucified and rose again, it has power. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It has power. It has dunamis. Paul will call it dunamis in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The, 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation when it is preached Hearts are changed. And that's exactly what happens in Thessalonica. Now, Luke wants us to make sure that we understand it was not a few. So not a few of the leading women. The leading women, this is important too, because women are all over the book of Acts. They are significant. They play a huge role in the church's um, growth, uh, in the church's health. You remember Lydia from last chapter in Philippi. She basically hosts the church in her home. Uh, and then the, 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 uh, the, the women at the tomb, uh, even from the end of the Gospels, uh, all, all through the book of Acts, women are elevated. And this is historically what Christianity has done. It has elevated women. But leading women would have been women of means, would have been rich women, okay, in Thessalonica. And then devout Greeks would have been Greeks who had converted to Judaism, some of which had already been through the process of circumcision and some of which were scheduled to be circumcised. So guess what happens here? Because the devout Greeks, great many, by the way, great many and not a few of the leading women, start to convert to Paul's message, guess what happens? This brings trouble. This is the original troublemaker. The gospel is the original troublemaker. Look at the trouble, verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some 
wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. So in the ancient world, there would have been this group of people that were just kind of like homeless sitting on the street, just waiting for trouble because they didn't have welfare systems like we have today. They didn't have, they didn't have uh, you know, hospitals and, and care facilities like we do today. So these people would have been just sitting around there waiting for an uproar, and here they go. The Jews go grab them. They form a mob. They set the city in an uproar, the original troublemaker, and they attack the house of Jason. Who's Jason? He just suddenly appears on the scene. Well, Jason is hosting Paul and his missionary team. And it says they're seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, and I love this line. This is the key line of the entire chapter, in my opinion. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These men, notice, who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. Okay, these are Jews, by the way. These are Jews who want Rome to be destroyed. And now, because the message that Paul preaches is taking some of their converts away from them, okay? Think about it. Some of the guys who weren't yet circumcised were probably like, you mean I can become one of you and not be circumcised? I'm in. <laughs> okay, so they're joining. Their numbers are growing. The Jewish synagogue is lowering in numbers. They get jealous. It causes trouble. So they cause trouble. The city's in an uproar. And the very people who hate Caesar are now like, wait, Caesar's you know, being disrespected. And it's, you know, there's, there's another king they're talking about named Jesus. The gospel causes trouble. The gospel causes trouble. So you know this. You, some of you know this. Some of you New Waters church peeps, you know this because you have recently come to Jesus and it's caused all kinds of trouble in your home. It's caused all kinds of trouble in your family and your friends. I want to talk about the trouble that the gospel causes. First, it causes personal trouble. It does. It causes personal or relational trouble. Or social trouble. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Why? I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Not that that little group needed any more help. <laughs> a person, sorry, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. This is what Jesus said. I have come to bring peace. Division, And you say, I thought Jesus was the Prince of Peace. Yes, he's peace for your heart. He's peace amongst the Christian community, but he also divides. You say, well, why? Because what happens is when you become a Christian, Jesus becomes your highest allegiance. When you are truly converted, and I, this is what I mean, it's the difference between going to church and being religious and actually being converted. Because when you are converted, Jesus is your highest love. It just happens. Your heart is changed. Many of you have felt this. You know this. You realize this. This is why many times at baptisms we see people say, I just felt God come all over me. And I knew at that moment Jesus was real. Their hearts are changed. And their number one allegiance goes from whoever it was formerly, mom, brother, spouse, child. Now it goes to Jesus. Well, guess what happens to mom, spouse, brother, child? They suddenly feel jilted. Now they suddenly feel like, wait, what happened to you? We used to be tight, now we're not as tight. You keep talking about Jesus. That's the division Jesus is talking about. The work of the gospel in human hearts produces personal, social, familial conflict. And there's no avoiding it. Secondly, it causes community conflict. It causes community trouble. John chapter 6, 16, I'm sorry, John chapter 16, 2 and 3, Jesus said this, they... Who's they, by the way? You'll see who they is. They will put you out of the synagogues. 
So the they there is religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, their community leaders. The community leaders of your community are going to cast you out, and they will do this, and they will kill you, and they will think that by killing you, they will think that they are offering service to God. In verse 3, he says, they will do these things because they have not known the Father or me. The, 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 the work of Jesus in a person's heart com- causes, causes great amounts of trouble for themselves socially, for themselves relationally, for themselves communally. It causes national trouble. Let's get bigger now. We've talked about social and familial and community, but now let's talk about national trouble. You ever notice how many times Christians are derided on social media, in movies, in entertainment, in pop culture. You ever see that? Like, they never, well, they try to pick on Muslims until somebody blows them up, like at Charlie Hedbo headquarters in France, right? And then they try to make fun of some other religions, but then they get a little bit of pushback and they suddenly back down. I, rem- I remember when the artist put a, a crucifix in a, in a bottle of pee, his own urine, and it was, it was hailed as this great uh, feat of art- artistry. And Christians were derided if they even questioned it. They were, how dare you deride modern art as modern art? People defended putting a crucifix in someone's urine as art. But they'll never put Muhammad in urine. They'll never put Buddha in urine. No, 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 we don't want to offend. But Christianity, man, will offend left, right, and center. It doesn't matter. Why? Because Christianity causes national trouble. It upends culture. This simple message, this simple message of a of a Nazarene uh, carpenter who was put to death and rose again. Caused all, kinds of, caused all kinds of flack. You know why? Because it changes the human hearts and people don't like people whose hearts have been changed because they know their hearts aren't changed. I read a book, it's a fantastic book you should read. It's called How Christianity Changed the World by Alvin Schmidt. It's fantastic. He writes in that book, he says, quote, Christians practiced a morality that condemned the Roman practices of abortion, infanticide, abandoning infants, suicide, homosexual sex, patria potestas. Patria potestas was a Roman uh, law giving fathers the governing authority of their home to put their own children to death if necessary. Christianity challenged that law. And the degradation of women. Their moral posture was one of many reasons why they were harassed, hated, despised, and often imprisoned, tortured, and killed. The Romans made them into an army of martyrs. Throughout history, this is what happens. Christianity has stood against the acceptable practices of the age that have hurt other humans. And other humans have hated them for it. Let's talk about infanticide because it was Roman law by the way. We, don't, we take these freedoms. We take human dignity. We take the value of human life for granted today. These laws that we have on the books to protect human rights, okay, they don't exist in the ancient world. The, the religious system that brought human rights and dignity to the front lines of moral perception was Christianity. So like in the Roman law, it was acceptable, it was permissible, it was actually even encouraged to toss... Um, lame uh, or physically disabled infants onto a garbage heap and leave them for dead. This actually was called Gehenna in the, Old, in the New Testament. That's what Jesus refers to when he talks about Gehenna. He refers to that place as hell. Hell's where you put children to death. Hell's where you let stinking bodies rot on a pile of fire that never dies. But this is Roman acceptable pr- pr- practice. It was infanticide. It was patria potestas. The father could kill his own children um, without consequence. In Ireland, 
up until the 5th century before St. Patrick. Not You know, today St. Patrick is all about drinking alcohol. He was a Christian missionary who went back to the place of his captivity on the island of Ireland and brought the gospel of Christ to his former captives. Did you know that before he showed up, it was acceptable on the island of Ireland to sacrifice prisoners of war to gods of war and newborn infants to the harvest gods. They did this regularly. This was acceptable. St. Patrick preaches the gospel. Hearts are changed, and it challenges the cultural norms of the society. We could go on and on. Slavery, the slave trade, was challenged by a Christian named William Wilberforce, a child of privilege born in Britain. He saw the evils of the slave trading in his middle life, and he worked until his dying day to bring about the end of the slave trade in Britain. It took him 20 years to get Parliament to declare the trade illegal. When it became clear to his enemies that he was not going to back down, his enemies, his pro-slavery enemies targeted him. He was vilified. Opponents spoke of the damnable doctrine of Wilberforce and his hypocritical allies. The opposition became so fierce, one friend feared that one day he would read about Wilberforce being carbonated, that's broiled by Indian planters, barbecued by African merchants, or, or eaten by Guinea captains. And the subjugation of women, it was not feminism that brought about women's rights. It was not feminism, modern-day feminism, which denounces mankind, man, the, the male gender. No, no, no. It was Christian belief. People like Susan B. Anthony, who was a Christian, a Quaker, an abolitionist, born in Massachusetts, by the way, Adams, Massachusetts, right over where I was raised. I wasn't raised in Adams, but I was raised nearby. She considered her work to bring women the right to vote an act of Christian worship. She was hanged in effigy and mocked in cartoons, laughed at by Congress for demanding equal rights for women, fined for casting her legal votes in, 19, in, in 1872, shouted down in public meetings and ridiculed in the press uh, by, the, by the upright and uptight communists of the day. This, this woman was vilified because as a Christian, she fought for people's rights. Segregation, to end segregation in the South, Martin Luther King Jr. paved the way to desegregate the South, to fight for civil liberty, civil rights for the African-American. But he was hated. People Today we hail him as this hero, but in his day he was hated. In, in 1999, they did a study, they did a public poll in 1999 of the most revered um, uh, humans in the last 100 years. Mother Teresa was number one, Martin Luther King Jr. was number two. But in the time of his death, at the time of his death, did you know that Martin Luther King Jr. had a disapproval rate of 75% of this country. 75% of this country at the death of Martin Luther King Jr. thought he was wrong. That's how it goes. I saw this on The Intercept the other day. This is from uh, this past Martin Luther King Jr. Day. The title of the article from The Intercept is Martin Luther King Jr. spent the last year of his life detested by the liberal establishment. People hated him. The very people he was fighting for, he, they hated him. But yet he was right, right? Like we look back on Martin Luther King, he was, like, he, he was right. But in his day, he was hated. I've said this before, that there, those who dare to buck the accepted norms of society in the name of Christ will often be hated by their own generation and hallowed in successive generations. It's just how it goes. It's short, it sort of makes you think about the modern obsession with approval ratings, right? I always hear about the approval ratings of the president. Oh, the approval ratings are bad. So what? So what? And it's always the opposition party news outlet that's talking about how disapproving Americans are of the president's job. Who cares? We don't know if he's doing a good job yet. We will know in decades from now. That's what they said about George Bush. They said, what do you think about your legacy and what people will think about it? He says, give it time. <laughs> Nobody knows what my legacy will be until 40 years from now. And he's right. He's right. 
We get obsessed about what people think about us in the morning. How does it apply to you right now? Here's how it applies. Because you can't get obsessed with what people think about you right now because today they might like you and you might be hated by them tomorrow. See, they might, they might disapprove of you today, but they'll, they'll thank you for standing your ground today later. That's usually how it works. It's actually how it worked with the Bible's heroes. Like, look at the heroes of the Bible. At the time of their actions, at the time they made heroic steps to bring about human flourishing and freedoms and provisions, they were hated. Joseph was hated by his brothers. Joseph was betrayed by Potiphar. Joseph was forgotten in prison by the chief cupbearer. Hated, disregarded. He's a hero. Moses was grumbled against, disbelieved, attacked. They tried to kill him. He had to face three separate insurrections by the people that he was trying to lead to freedom. Three separate insurrections, one of which was led by his own brother and sister. His own brother and sister hated him. He was right. History proved him right. But in the time he was doing it, he was vilified and hated. David was rejected by his father, ridiculed by his brothers. King Saul wanted to kill him. He had to run for his life for 13 years, but he was right. In the time he was acting, he was considered wrong, but he was right. Elijah was hunted down by the national leaders of his own country. Ahab famously referred to Elijah in 1 Kings 18, 17. He said, is that you, you troubler of Israel? He's talking about Elijah. Ahab, the king, the guy who everybody thought was important at the time. See, we read these Bible stories. We don't see them for what they are. In his time, Ahab was in charge. He was the king. People were following Ahab, left, right, and center. They loved Ahab. They thought Ahab was the bomb. And Elijah, Ahab says, you're the troubler of Israel. What do you think of Ahab today? What do you think of Elijah today? It's flipped. The script has been flipped, hasn't it? Or Jeremiah, Jeremiah who was cast into a pit by his contemporaries. Why? Because he dared challenge the cultural norms of his day. Jeremiah 38, verse 4, it says this, The official said to the king, Let this man, Jeremiah, be put to death. For this man, this was the attack of his contemporaries, for this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. And now here we are, centuries later, who, whose book is in the Bible? Who is revered? Who do we quote time and time again when we quote from the Bible? We quote from Jeremiah, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. That's from Jeremiah's word. He was right. And the point that I'm trying to make for you personally is, don't worry about what people think of you today as you follow Christ. Okay, I'm not, I'm not giving you license to be a jerk. I'm talking about following Jesus. And as you follow Jesus, if people don't like what you do as you follow Jesus, who cares? History will prove you right if you're truly following Jesus. So Thessalonians, Thessalonians, accused Paul of causing political and social upheaval. They say he's disturbing the peace. He's advocating for some foreign king. Notice that the attack against Paul, listen to this very carefully. Listen in, lean in here, deep enders. It was an attack that he was causing political and social upheaval. Political and social upheaval. Stay out of politics, pastor. Stay out of politics. Why? Don't you understand that the Greek word for politics is just politika? It means affairs of the cities. Cities are made of people. People have individual beliefs. If we affect the individual beliefs of people, we will affect the cities. Politics, we have to address politics. We have to address what's going on in the world. We have to call sin, sin. We have to call 
laws that are that are godless, godless. We have to stand for uh, the rights of the individual and the rights for women and the rights for children and and we have to stand against the social tide of uh, redefining the family. We have to stand against abortion. We have to stand for the right to life. By the way, Susan B. Anthony, this, this hero of the political women's feminism movement, was an avid opponent of abortion. They don't, they don't bring that up, but she was an avid opponent of abortion. Just amazing to me how often we miss this. And, the, and, and, and we've got to remember our heritage as the church. This brings me to this truth. The truth is this. The Christian message will challenge the sensibilities of political ideologies. That's what political ideologies are. They're just, they're just the thoughts of people. If we're going to change people's hearts, political ideologies will be challenged. And they should be challenged. Bringing you back to Martin Luther King Jr., he once said this, he once said this famous word. I love Martin Luther King Jr., how he talked about things, how he said things. He said, quote, Any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the slums that cripple the soul, the economic conditions that, str- that stagnate the soul, and the city governments that may damn the soul is a do- dry, dead, do-nothing religion in need of new blood. Amen. Martin Luther King Jr. He also said we need to recapture the gospel glow over the early Christians who were nonconformists in the truest sense of the word, and refused to share, shape their witness according to the mundane patterns of the world. Willingly, they sacrificed fame, fortune, and life itself on behalf of the cause they knew to be right. I'm appalled at the way Christians today are trying to chase fame, trying to chase Instagram followers, trying to chase being known. For what? Refusing. It's amazing to me how many pastors will not talk about abortion from the pulpit. But when, a, but when a young man, a young black man gets shot in Alabama, disgracefully, I will admit, they are all over the news. They are all over Instagram, putting his picture up, defending and talking about how awful it is. And I agree, it is awful. What happened to Ahmad Arbery there in uh, Atlanta last two months ago? I agree, it's a horrible, vicious, racist crime. And I see all the pastors on Instagram posting about how awful it is, but they're silent on abortion. They're silent on uh, the redefinition of the family, silent on the redefinition of marriage. No, 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 we can't go there because that's, that's not politically correct. We're just kowtowing. We're not standing up. We're not doing what's right. We're standing up for the, 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 the poor and, and the alien and the, and the people who don't have rights. We've got to do it all. We, we should be challenging both sides of the political aisle, by the way. I'm not talking about one. I'm talking about both sides of the political aisle. We should be challenging them. In the name of Christ, it should cause a little bit of national political upheaval because this is our heritage. This is how it has gone down in history. Just had this point to make. If the gospel does not cause conflict in our present age, are we even preaching it? Are we even preaching the gospel if it does not cause conflict in our present age? Wherever Paul went, conflict. (laughs) Verse 8. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed. Conflict. Who? The city authorities, the governors. This is why I talk about this corona crisis overreach of government. This is why I talk about it. This is why I tell you about it. Because it's, it's, if it's wrong, it's wrong. And if city authorities don't like what we say, then it's so be it. People need to earn a living. People need to earn a living. They need to work. You're going to start seeing now, 
the reports come out on the news about how important it is for people to earn a living and to make their own money and to feed their own families. It's important not just to their stomachs. It's important to their brains, to their mental capacities, to their emotions. It's an important part of your humanity. To be robbed of this by government dictate is an offense to human flourishing. When they heard these things, the city authorities were disturbed. And when they had taken the money and security from, from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The, distru- the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So what you need to see here is that they got to get Paul out of town because it's that bad. And the bond here could be referring to money to ensure that Paul won't return. In fact, Paul will say to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, he says, I tried to come back, but Satan hindered me. Kind of ironic that he refers to it as Satan when it's really just the governmental authorities. (laughs) Well, that's for another discussion. Verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble. Now who, what, what Jews? These Jews. The Jews in Berea. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed not, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So again, just notice this too. It's a very common theme in the book of Acts that rich people get saved. This nonsense about how the gospel is only for the poor. Where, where does that come from? <laughs> rich people get saved. Rich people need Jesus. And they get saved all the time. And they use their money to fund the kingdom. Thank God. Thank God that they get saved. Anyway, these Jews were more noble than Thessalonians. Why? Because they received the word with eagerness. By the way, the word noble in another translation is open-minded. That's kind of ironic, too, that they were open-minded and they received the word of Jesus. Today, now, we're called closed-minded if we believe the word of Jesus. They were open-minded because they received the word. And then notice, oh, I love this. Please notice this, church people. They examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was right. I would love it if 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 my church did that. I would love it. Please do. See if what I'm telling you is right. Prove me wrong. I mean, I'm all for it. I want you to be in the Bible. I want you to examine the scriptures and see Jesus on every page, to see the the beauty of God's truth and how it transforms you. Personally, that's called being open-minded. Being open-minded is not saying everything is true and everything is right, and if it works for you, then it must be true. That's not being open-minded. That's being so open-minded your brain fell out. Being open-minded is to say, let me see if I need to change. That's open-mindedness. Open-mindedness is admitting you might be wrong about something. That's what open-mindedness is. So, verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring stirring up the crowds. More trouble. (laughs) The original troublemakers. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. So this is probably the worst act of hostility Paul ever faced. It's, he's getting attacked not just by the Thessalonians in Thessalonica. They travel 45 miles away to, to attack him in Berea. He has to flee the city there. And then verse 15, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. I just want you to see this on the map so that we can get a little bit of a picture of this. Um, this is where Jerusalem is. I'm going to put this little blue mark. That's Jerusalem. Uh, here's where Tarsus is. If you're watching this on video, this is what you'll see. I'll, I'm, I'm putting this up on the screen. But th- so Paul's from here, and this uh, the Jerusalem where Jesus Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified here, where where the, where the church started. And remember, in Antioch, which is right around here, that's where Paul and Barnabas were were sent off on their first missionary journey. 
Notice how far he's gone now. This is Philippi, then Thessalonica, then Berea, and now Athens is here. He's gone far for the gospel. The gospel, man, propels this man to go to the far reaches of the world. Just to bring it up a little bit bigger, Thessalonica, like I said, Berea, 45 miles away. So, you know, down here to Athens, probably about 300 miles away. He, he needs to get far away from these people because who knows how far they're willing to travel to go and harass him. So let's get to this section, Paul in Athens, because this section is awesome. I love this section. Paul is in a Greek city. He is in a saturated Greek city. Uh, it was the center of Greek thought. It's the city of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, much of modern learning in our universities today owes a huge debt to this particular city, okay? And Paul brought the gospel there. Now, when Paul gets there in about 52 AD, it's, it's, it's well past its prime. The Romans have taken it over. Um, it's no longer the center of public thought, but it is still a philosophical center. So let's get into the text, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul's spirit was provoked as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. What I love about Paul here is that he can't just sit still. <laughs> See, the gospel causes trouble for Paul. It does, I, I said that in the beginning. It causes you societal trouble and familial trouble, but it also causes you some internal trouble, doesn't it? The gospel causes you, if it's not causing you internal trouble, I wonder if you've even received it. Like, like what I mean is that once Jesus is Lord of your heart, there are things that are always going to be in conflict there. You're always going to be like, oh, why do I do that? Oh, why did I think that? Oh, I hate that about me. Yeah, that's what the gospel does. It comes and it upends what you think is right, even about your own life, mostly about your own life. But I want you to notice a couple of things. He's looking around the city. He's on a tour. He doesn't mean to preach there, but he can't stop because his spirit is provoked. The word provoked means um, it has this, this uh, association with medical discomfort. He, he almost has this seizure, this almost epileptic, like he's shaking at how full of idols the city is. So the gospel starts to cause trouble inwardly for Paul. And the city is full of idols, and the word full of idols, this is the, it, it carries the connotation that the city was literally swamped in idols. They're, they're literally drowning in idols. Someone wrote uh, back in like 200 AD or something like that, I forget who exactly wrote it, but they said it was more easy to find an idol in Athens than a man. I mean, it was just overrun with idols, an idol for everything. They had an idol for feelings. They, I, I read today, they had an idol for shame. They had an idol for uh, guilt. They had an idol for fear. I mean, they had an idol for everything. And you know what Athens is like? Athens is a lot like America today. Our country is full of idols. We've got an idol. We've got a, we, we'll worship anything in this country. We will worship anything in this country. Today you can find not, not statues of Greek gods in this country, but you know what you can find? Statues of sports heroes from 50 years ago in the middle of the city. Remember when we used to put like war heroes in the middle of the city? Now we put sports heroes in the middle. We put statues of people who score goals in cities. <laughs> they, played a, they played a sport. <laughs> now, they're, now they're idols. Murals can cover an, uh, the outside of a building 100 feet high. 
in the image of LeBron James or Michael Jordan or, or some other sports figure. Idols. We'll surrender tons of money, pay subscription fees out the wazoo to get our fix of entertainment into our homes. Young people, the lure of being famous or having thousands of Instagram followers, it becomes an idol that you worship. Or you worship the Instagram person with the thousands of followers, or the YouTube star. For many parents, their children are their idols. Their children's happiness is everything to them. They'll do whatever it takes to keep their kids happy. Whatever it takes to make sure that they like me. Whatever, whatever it takes to make sure that they don't blame me for their problems. They'll do whatever it takes. They're worshiping at the altar of their children's happiness. And for some Christian parents, they put their kids' happiness ahead of Christian faith. It's idolatry. For some, the romantic partner is an idol. You're convinced you're going to be nobody until, until you're with someone, until you're married, until you, until you find someone who loves you. Like, this is, you understand, this idolatry. I'm all for marriage. I'm 100% for it. But if it causes you to walk out of the church, if it causes you to turn on Christ, and this is a big one for a lot of people, they're so desperate to find someone, they'll compromise their Christian values to be with someone. It's idolatry. That's why the scripture is clear here. It says it was overrun. It was swamped in idols. Here's the ironic thing about idolatry. At first, we make our idols, and then we serve them, and before you know it, they swallow us. Before you know it, we're submerged in them. We're so submerged in idolatry in this country, we don't even realize we're submerged. We're like fish who don't know they're wet. That's what's happened to our country. Now political ideology is an idol. My political f affiliation, my presidential choice, my governor's choice, idols, like this, everything will be fixed as long as so-and-so gets in office. Man, you know what? No, not everything will be fixed. You know what won't be fixed? The human heart will not be fixed, no matter who's in office. That's why we've got to challenge both sides of the political aisle. So his spirit is provoked. And by the way, if you're not provoked by this stuff in, in, in our country, man, check your faith. It should provoke your spirit to some extent to see how much idolatry is out there like, gets on you after a while. And Paul can't hold his peace. He starts speaking up. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, what does this babbler wish to say? I love that word. We'll get that back to that in just a moment. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, and by the way, in Latin, that's Mars Hill. There's a couple of churches in our country named Mars Hill for that reason. Uh, they brought him to, the, uh, to uh, the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Okay. Um, first off, they call him a babbler, which is uh, the word actually is uh, spermolog spermologus, which means someone who picks up seed randomly. They just pick up seed. And the, and the idea is this is somebody who scrounges around for scraps of, of ideas and fools himself into thinking that he's educated. In other words, they actually said that Paul was a, listen to this, a pseudo-intellectual. A pseudo-intellectual. Isn't that funny how often Christians today, and I'm talking about Bible-believing Christians who believe Jesus literally rose from the dead is not a fable, who believe in the miracles, who believe Noah did build the ark, Noah did survive the flood, who believe G God, uh, Moses did you know, divide the sea, right? 
were considered pseudo-intellectuals. Nothing, 2,000 years later, nothing's changed. <laughs> the only thing you need to remember is that the people to which Paul talks to, the people who are criticizing Paul, are literally forgotten on the ash heap of history. And Paul today, 2,000 years later, is regarded as one of the most important people in human history. So let them call you pseudo-intellectual today. Later on, you'll see what will happen. Anyway, going on in the text. we got to get back to this because I am just going so long. I'm sorry. Um, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. We've got to talk about this because this is important because these two philosophies are still alive and well today even though they are not called Epicurean and Stoic. Today we say, oh, that guy's really Stoic, which means that nothing really phases him. Well, that's not... That's not really the uh, or original um, philosophy. These philosophies, uh, in large part, were a response to uh, the the um, what would you call it the, uh, the the lessening of Greek uh, mythology. Like Greek mythology had kind of waned on the Greek populace by this time, right? So this is past the heyday of Athens. Remember, I said that. And so these two philosophies, because Greek, panth- because Greek mythology is what it is, empty, they developed some philosophies. And the most common were Epicurean and, and Stoicism. So I want to just bring you through these philosophies, and, and let me ask you if you can see what they are. Uh, Epicureans believed, number one, that pleasure was the ultimate goal of life. Ironically, in college, I worked for a restaurant called the Epicurean. Um, but anyway, pleasure was the ultimate goal of life. They believed that the gods were, if there were any gods, they were so detached uh, and they were so remote, they didn't really care about human affairs. Uh, And they didn't believe in an afterlife. So guess what that meant? Have all the fun you can have right now. Their main philosophy was eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That was it. Now, don't confuse this with hedonism because hedonism was also a philosophy in the ancient world and still today. It wasn't straight hedonism. It was... Pursue what brings you the most pleasure for the most time. So they weren't actually big on sexual pursuits, and they weren't actually big on drinking and drunkenness, but they were big on whatever makes you happy the longest, go do that because that's what life is all about because there is no afterlife. So get all you can while you can right now. So these would have been people that would have fit right comfortably into the middle class of American life. Do what makes you happy. Hey, hey, it's all about your happiness. Whatever makes you happy, pal. <laughs> That's Epicureanism. And they sought freedom from the they sought freedom from pain in body and soul. These people would have loved CVS. <laughs> These people, man, they would have been there every day. How can we get this out of our body? Just give me something. Give me a drug. I don't care. I'll pop a pill. Because it was all about pleasure. Okay, now the Stoics were different. The Stoics were, they believed that you had to live in harmony with nature. That was the ultimate goal, not pleasure. It wasn't all about your pleasure, okay? It was about harmony, being, let me put it another way, being one with the earth, loving the world, loving the trees, right? They believed that the universe was governed by a guiding principle called the logos. That's uh, very important for Bible scholars because John, the, the revelator, will write the gospel of John and he will say, in the beginning was the logos, the word. He will actually use this term to refer to Jesus. But they believed that the universe was governed by this ultimate guiding principle. Their philosophy would have been grin and bear it. You need to suffer to be in harmony with the world, so be it. 
So they would have been right in line with these climate alarmists, man. They would love climate people, man. Whatever it takes to make the climate happy, we, we need to sell our car, we'll do it. We need to walk to work from now, fine, no problem. We need to start killing, abor- we need to start killing children in the womb to make sure we're not overpopulating the earth, absolutely. Whatever it takes to live in harmony with nature. Submission to fate and the material order was paramount. That's what they believed. It's amazing how the philosophies, though they are not named this, are still well alive and well today in America. I just want to poke the bear a little bit here. Because today, I don't know if you heard about it, like Epicureans were the spring breakers who say coronavirus pandemic won't stop them from partying. But don't worry because they'll be back after the coronavirus epidemic a few months from now to tell us that we're all going to die because of global warming. <laughs> uh, Epicureans and Stokes. That's what I think anyway. It's just ironic. These philosophies have not changed. And so, verse 21, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And the key word here is, that's what they spent their time. Something new. Oh, is it new? Do you have something new to tell us? This is, the, this, is the, the, uh, this is paganism in a nutshell. Tell me something that I've never heard before. I'll believe it. I mean, that's paganism. You, you ever heard the old adage, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. That's, that's a great adage because God's truth is true from eternity past to eternity present to eternity future. It never changes. So if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. Anyway, Paul starts to talk to these people. He says, uh, verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Okay. I, I want to just end this talk in this chapter because Paul gives us a master class on communicating with people who are different than you. On, this is so good. Remember, Paul is in strange territory. He is first off, he didn't even want to be in Macedonia. He didn't even want to be in what we call Europe today. He wanted to go to Asia where there's more Jews. So he's kind of like on strange territory. And he's in Athens. He's in the center of Greek paganism, Greek mythology. And he's like a stranger in a strange land. And he he does this marvelous appeal to people who are unlike him. If you want to be an effective Christian, you have to learn how to talk to people who are not like you. Especially in, in this day and age, as, as we are becoming more and more of a minority in religious thought, we have to learn how to talk in a way that respects people's differences and at the same time challenges their assumptions. And that's exactly what Paul does here. First off, he says, guys, I see you're very religious. And, and, the, word, and the word that he uses for religious here is not actually a bad word. It's actually um, a word that means, I, sinc- I see that you're sincere and devout. So he's not trying to you know, pick a fight with them right now. He's not saying, hey, you false idol worshipers, God, God put you to hell, you know, repent. No, he, he can't do that because that's not their language. They aren't Jews. They're pagans. So he says, I pass and I observe the object of worship. I found an altar with this inscription, the unknown God. The word for unknown here is agnosis, which we get the word agnostic from. So there was this God that they did not know. They were like, well, just in case we missed one, we want this altar. You know, we have all these, all just in case there's one we haven't heard of, let's put an altar out there. He says, now I'm going to tell you about that one. I love this because Paul starts where they are at. When you want to tell your faith to other people, start where they are. Don't always start where you are. Ask them about them. What's, what's concerning them? What's on their heart? What's on their mind? It's important for us to understand as preachers, as, as pastors, but it's also important for people who, who just follow Jesus and have friends who don't follow Jesus. Start where they are. 
Verse 24, he says, look, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, now this is an important word, a lot of periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is not actually far from each of us. Now, this is the second thing that he does. First, he meets them where they are, but secondly, he, he uses commonalities, okay, that he and the audience could agree on. Because first off, you have to see it. I don't know if you can see it, but this is why I brought up what those philosophies, Stoicism and Epicureanism, were all about. Remember, Stoics believed that there was a fate. There was this all-consuming fate, this order of the world. Well, guess what Paul says? Yeah, there is. It's called God. He determined where you live. Oh, okay, yeah, we can agree with that. You see, he's making inroads into their philosophy. He's making agreement where he can agree with them. You know that thing that you believe about fatalism? Yeah, let me tell you about that. That's the God of the universe. And then he says he did this so that we could feel our way toward him. Who would have resonated with feelings? Who would have resonated with feelings? The Epicureans. You see how he's trying to speak to both crowds. This is a master class in communicating with people who are different than you. He says, I can resonate with that. I hear you. I, hear, I see where you're at. Well, let me just tell you about that. Let me, let me offer you what I know. And then, he's, and then he does this in verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets, look at this, some of your own poets have said, notice that, that Paul doesn't quote scripture. He, he's going to talk about the truths of scripture, but he's not going to chapter and verse them. Why? Because they don't know scripture. They don't know the Bible. They don't care about the Bible. They don't even know what the Jewish religion is about. So he starts where they are. And he talks about their, their poets. Your poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. So there's two actual quotes here from Greek um, uh, philosophers. In him we live and move and have our being, and we are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, verse 29, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. See, I was just thinking about this, and this is an important facet for our, our world. And I know I denounce entertainment in many ways, but in many ways we can look at entertainment we can look at, you know, Netflix shows, and we can look at movies, and we can look at songs, especially songs, the poets of our age, and we can see, where's the commonality? Where's the human, the human condition commonalities? I was just thinking about it. As I was studying for this, I looked up, and I do this on a regular basis, I look up the top 40 number one hit single. This week is Blinding Lights by The Weeknd. And the lyrics talk about this. I look around Sin City, and it's cold and empty. No one's around to judge me. I can't see clearly when you're gone. What is he talking about? He's like, I need someone to love me where I'm at. You know what I would say to them? I'd say, you know who loves you where you're at right now? Jesus Christ. He loves you where you're at right now. And he wants to change your life. He wants to he'll come in and do life with you. He can change you. Because that's right. Sin City is cold and empty. Or Billie Eilish's song, Everything I Wanted. What a fantastic song that speaks to the human condition. The opening lyrics are, I had a dream. I got everything I wanted. Not what you'd think. And if I'm being honest, it might have been a nightmare. Exactly. Getting everything that you want. Epicureanism. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't give you what you want. Or movies. You know, the second rated movie on imdb.com is The Shawshank Redemption. That movie is the gospel. You know why that movie strikes us so, you know, they call it being Shawshanked. Like you try to go out and do yard work and then you turn on the TV for a second and there it is on TNT again. You watch it and if, before you know it, you're two hours into the movie. You've been Shawshanked, okay? <laughs> um, that movie's the gospel. An innocent man goes to prison, offers hope, and leads his friend Red out of prison because of hope, through hope. 
His Andy Dufresne's resurrection from Shawshank Prison leads Red to the coast of Mexico, Zehuataneo. Remember? Because the man who was, imp- it was falsely accused and falsely imprisoned brought hope to a hopeless world. It's the gospel. That's pop culture, pop culture filled with sex, drugs, abuse, evil, murder, injustice. You say, you shouldn't watch that. I say, sometimes you should watch it because that's the human condition. That's what humans do. And we need help and we need redemption. We need redemption from Jesus Christ. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. Okay, the third thing that Paul does is he confronts them. Okay, so you can't just pander. You can't just try to find commonality with the audience. You can't just meet them where they are and then just kind of like, you know, okay, they're there, God loves you. No, he confronts them and he says, now it's time to repent. God has overlooked your ignorance. Now I've told you the truth and now it's time to respond. And by the way, he says, he has fixed him a day in which he would judge the world by a man whom he has appointed. There is a judgment coming. There is a judgment coming. That's why I say, who cares what your culture thinks of you today? You could be accepted by this culture and rejected by heaven. I'd rather be accepted by heaven and rejected by this culture. So just kind of summarizing what Paul does to reach people different than himself. I want to put them in points. And I've already said them, but I'm just going to rehearse them again. Number one, Paul tailors the message to the audience to whom he is speaking. There's no Bible text used here. He tailors the message to them who don't know the Bible. He offers spiritual truths, biblical truths, but doesn't chapter and verse them. Number two, he uses commonalities that he and the audience would agree on. So he appeals to the Epicureans. He appeals to the Stoicists. And he says, listen, I want to offer you a better solution. But ultimately, number three, he confronts the audience. What are you going to do with this? Now I've told you, what are you going to do with this? And and by the way, once we tell people, that's it. We, We can get out of the way. You don't have to be responsible for the response. This is great. This is great news for those of you who struggle to share your faith. You are not responsible for the response. You are responsible for saying it and then getting out of the way and letting God do the work. Isn't that wonderful? So much easier if you just take the pressure off yourself there. Verse 32, now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Another, other, other translations say they laughed. But others said, we will hear more about this later. And then verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst, but some, some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus. He becomes a bishop, actually, of the church in Athens and the first martyr from Athens for Christ, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris. And I just noticed again, another woman, women and the elevation of women. This does not come from feminism. It comes from Christianity named Damaris, and others with them. I was just thinking about the fact that they mocked them again. We're going to get mocked. We're going to get, some people aren't going to like us. We're going to talk about Jesus. Some people are going to laugh at us. Some people are going to ridicule us. Some, some, some people are going to think we're out of our minds because we, we hold to these antiquated beliefs and these, these, you know, these fables from the ancient world. Yeah, they're going to mock. You know what mocking actually is? You know what a mocking actually is? Mocking is a sign that the person does not have an argument. It means that they have nothing to say, so they just laugh at you because they don't understand. Mocking actually is a sign of pride because you can't accept that you may be wrong, so you have to belittle the person who's challenging your assumptions. That's what mocking is. So let them mock. It's to their own downfall. You, I, we, the church, Let's preach the gospel and let's be willing to challenge our culture, to challenge our 
accepted norms. William Wilberforce, Susan B. Anthony, Mike, Martin Luther King Jr. They're looking down on us from heaven. They're, 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 their time has come and gone. And many of them, by the way, did not see the fruits of their labor in their lifetime. Paul did not see the church get planted in Athens. He never wrote a letter to the church in Athens. He never did. But guess what today? Athens is 87% Christian. You go to Athens today, you can visit the Parthenon, the ruins of the Parthenon, the ruins of Mars Hill, the ruins of Greek mythology. And 87% of the country is Eastern Orthodox, Greek, Greek Orthodox, sorry, Christians. It's the national religion, Christianity. 2,000 years later, they laughed at him. But now today, we know he was right. I bring you back to my question. This is the, is the final thought I have for you today. If the gospel does not cause conflict in our present age, are we even preaching it? We've got to, we've got to challenge the, the accepted norms of our culture. We must say something, and we must say it today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Deep End. I have enjoyed presenting it to you. I encourage you to please make sure you log on to youtube.com slash The Deep End TV, youtube.com slash The Deep End TV. Like and subscribe. And even if you didn't like the episode, please like it anyway. Because you know what? You should have liked it. I'm glad to be here with you. I will see you next Tuesday night on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End with Tim Hatch.